0: preach if yours works and mine doesn't we'll just oh mine's working well, how'd that do that well, you just gotta push the button just once uh I really appreciate this is not on purpose, it was accidental, and so it may make the sermon a little bit longer, but I'm sure you don't mind at all. Uh, This is the song that we just sang, probably in my list, Tops, 728B is my favorite song ever. You are my strength when I am weak, you are the treasure that I seek, you are my all in all. I've, I've sung that song many times. Uh, especially when I really meant it, when I really needed him. I was on a a bike ride yesterday for an extended period, and I sang that song probably a couple hundred times through, at least in my mind, I would kind of fade out and then it would come back in. When I fall down, you pick me up. When I am dry, you fill my cup. You, you are my all in all. And I think that really uh, epitomizes what we're called to be as Christians. And it's why we meet together as a church. is because as we find ourselves down and struggling and hurting, God does not say, go try to figure it out by yourself or go hunker in a cave. He says, get out and get into community. And that's why it's really special that we are reminded that when we have difficult times, we're Surrounded by those loved ones, as God lifts us up, uh, Lynn uh, mentioned a little bit about it, and I guess he stole my thunder, but I wanted to to point out how special it is that Lynn is back up here with us after over a year of battling through so many things what he 's always wanted to do is lift his voice up to the Lord, uh, and that is what Satan was trying to take away from him was his voice and God said, "I will overcome he 's done that through lynn he 's done that through some of you." Uh, widows who faithfully have continued uh, to worship Him, even though you've gone through times of grief. For those of you who have lost loved ones, who've been through accidents, who've uh, felt the devastation of a divorce, whatever it is, you have to remember that God continues to lift us up. Amen? And that's why we're here, because we lift one another up, and most importantly, we lift up God, our Creator. I want to thank you all for being here this morning. We're here to worship God, but we also want to take a little bit of time this morning and we want to talk about fathers and the role that they play. Now, you know how this goes. When it's Mother's Day, we bust out the carnations and we talk about how wonderful mothers are. And when it's Father's Day, we just tend to berate the fathers and say, Dads, if you did a better job, And that's not what we're going to do today. What I want to do is I want to share an example from the Bible of a father who who showed his child, his daughter, what a father should really do. And I think we can learn a little bit from that. It comes from Matthew chapter 9. Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. And I'll tell you right now, this is my favorite story in the Bible, but I've always taken a different look at it. I've always talked about it as the greatest half story ever told. And some of you are familiar with this. Jesus steps off the boat and immediately he's met by a man by the name of Jairus, a synagogue ruler, but I always rushed through that part. I only talked about Jairus to contrast him with this bleeding woman in whom we know nothing about except the fact that. She's been suffering for the last 12 years, and instead of getting better, she spent all her money, and she got worse. And I love to talk about the story, how she reached out, and she touched his coat, because she says, if I just touch it, I will be healed. And she was freed from her suffering, and that was always the story for me. That was the half of the story that was so special. But I never really thought about the role of Jairus, and what he did, and how important his story is for us fathers. And so I want to begin, and I want us to talk about Jairus. We know that he was a synagogue ruler. That meant that he was powerful. Uh, It meant that he had quite a bit of prestige. Uh, It meant that he was probably very wealthy. He dressed well. People knew about him. As I've jokingly said, that people probably name-dropped Jairus when they saw him. They would go tell their friends, guess who I just saw in the market? It was Jairus. And so it was quite a shock when Jairus would do what he did for his daughter. Jairus is walking through a crowd as Jesus is stepping off the boat. And we know what happens when Jesus gets around these uh, religious people. Usually it means one thing. It means the fight is on. Jesus reserved His harshest comments to the religious leaders, and many times the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in trying to trick Jesus, found themselves on the wrong end of that deal. And so you can imagine as they step off onto the shore, the apostles bracing themselves for another religious leader and his rant about how Jesus is doing things on the Sabbath that He shouldn't be doing. But it's amazing because what Jairus does in his gold, uh, gold chains and his long purple flowing robe and all his majesty that would set him apart from the peasants, because that's what they love to do, he came forward and he got up and everybody's getting ready and then he, he falls down. He falls down at the feet of Jesus. You know, there's a lot of things that his daughter would later talk about in her life. She might want to write a book about what it's like to die and then come back to life. But I wonder what she might say of her father. I think the first thing that this little girl, this 12-year-old, would say about her father is that he was willing to seek out Jesus. All three of the accounts share that Jairus went to Jesus. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but think about this. His little daughter is dying, he's there at her bedside. Why didn't he just send somebody? Honey, I'm going to stay right here next to her. You go. Or we've got plenty of servants, or I have some friends, some connections. I know a guy with a really fast horse. He can go after Jesus. Jairus chose to seek out Jesus. As this little girl would later talk about her father, the first thing she would say is, I have a father who will seek after Jesus. Isn't that? Isn't that something that should be commended? There's a lot of things that we seek after and I don't want to throw dads under the bus. I'll throw us all under the bus on this one, but isn't it easy to get caught up in the wrong things? I've I've been on a little bit of a tear lately. And I was sharing with my brother, we got to visit Arlington and spend some time with him, and, and we started talking about some of the struggles specifically that we're having with sports and how it has just literally consumed our lives, and, and literally Jesus has taken a backseat to sports. It, it just, it is, it's driven me crazy. And I said, let's, let's dream for a second. I said, let's dream for just a second that every hope that you have for your child athletically or academically or with popularity, let's dream for a second that all of that comes true. Let's pretend that your child makes the junior high squad that's a standout in varsity, that does what few children will get to do. They will get to go on and play college ball. Let's pretend for a second that they are literally the one in a million that will have some career, probably short, but they might have some career professionally getting paid to play sports. Let's pretend that. Let's pretend that you have a son that is a super football player, and he gets to go in the league, you usually last three and a half years in the NFL. Let's say he doubles that and he lasts seven years. And for seven years he gets a bunch of money and a banged up body and some popularity and a lot of people coming after him, his time, his money, and his family. I said, then what? You're 29 years old. You got lots of money and your whole life you've been listening to coaches and schools and organizations and they all tell you what to do. You know, it's no surprise that there are so many of these athletes who find themselves lost and depressed after they get the dream they thought that they wanted. What is it really that you think that your child will say about you. If they are the valedictorian, it's wonderful. If they attend Harvard, that's great. But if they have not seen their father and their mother actively seeking Jesus, then what do they have? In in the minting world, M-I-N-T-I-N-G, when you mint a coin, what you do is you you take this slab of metal, this piece of metal, uh, and you take it and you impress on this with a, a great amount of weight. And you get one shot to do this. Uh, especially in, in the, uh, as it was beginning, what you wanted to do is you had to have one good strike on there. Because if you tried to hit again, no matter how many times you tried to do it, it wouldn't come out perfect. So you had one really good hit. You had one time you could impress upon that piece of metal what you wanted to show. It's why we use the term, the first impression. What are we impressing upon our children? Because once you've made that impression, it's tough to back up 29 years and say, okay, we've gone through all these dreams, now let me tell you about Jesus. You see, at 12 years old, this little girl who was very ill would later be able to talk about her father. And the one thing that she's going to remember about him, the first thing is that he sought out Jesus. That even with all his friends... With all his money, the one thing that mattered was finding Jesus. And I love how we catch this as he falls down at the feet of Jesus. And I imagine this, this was not on some nice pavement. Uh, It would have been even worse than a caliche road. They were on this muddy or sandy edge of the lake in which he fell down and with the mud squishing up through his fingers and the teardrops and he would just plead. The NIV used the words earnestly. It can also be translated as desperately pleading with Jesus. Please come and heal my daughter. The second thing that this young little girl would learn about uh, her father and she would tell other people later on was the fact that he would invite Jesus into the house. Have you ever thought about a conversation that would ensue? Let's pretend for just a second that They had the technology then as we do now, and Jairus would pick up his cell phone and he would call his wife and say, honey, guess what, Jesus is coming, and so is the rest of the town. He didn't care. He didn't care about the disorder or the chaos, what the house might have looked like. What he was concerned about was getting Jesus in his house. That was the most important thing to him. If I can bring Jesus here, then I know that he can do something about it. And so they begin this long trek. And I, I find this just the most intriguing story is along the way, they get sidetracked by a woman, and yet Jairus remains there. He doesn't say, I'm not going to wait for you, Jesus. You have to come on my time and on my terms. He waited. He waited as Jesus asked silly questions like, who touched me? He waited while this unclean woman shared her whole story with Jesus. Because He wanted Jesus in his house. What what would our nation look like if we had fathers who brought Jesus into the house? I'm not going to complain too much on this point, but I do want to bring it out. You know, it's it's a really a nice thing that I have an opportunity to stand before you and speak. And actually, this is my livelihood, in a sense. I actually get paid to do this. And that's a wonderful thing. I'm not complaining. Please, don't misunderstand me. Uh, I love that my, my daughter has diapers and we have food on the table. Those are good, healthy, wholesome things. But I want to suggest that maybe in some ways the fact that we have hired ministers... And we have deacons and elders and Bible school teachers. Maybe in some ways we've relegated the responsibility of teaching our children to somebody else. Well, it's never going to be the Sunday school's teacher's responsibility to teach your child about Jesus. It's yours. You are the one... Who's in charge of that? You know what? Lance does a phenomenal job, but his time with these kids is pretty limited compared to what you, you get with them. And I, I think it's a little crazy to think that in 30 minutes or an hour or two hours a week, he's supposed to do what you've been called to do 168 hours. That that's our responsibility. That we're supposed to call Jesus into the house. I pray for you. I pray for your children. The staff here prays for you and your children. The elders here, they pray for you and your children. But they're your children. The only prayers that they hear shouldn't be in an auditorium or in a youth room. They should, they should be heard at the dinner table. They should be heard at bedtime. They should be heard in times of joy and in times of crisis. Jesus needs to be invited into the home. And the last thing that we would hear this young 12-year-old say about her father, she would say, I have a father who completely trusts in Jesus. The second half of the story that I rarely focus on, and I think it's important that we spend the last few minutes talking about, is what took place right after this woman shared the whole story. There were a group of men, representatives, servants, who came from Jairus' house, and they said, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the Master anymore? Jairus doesn't say a word. Instead, Jesus looks at him. And he says, Don't be afraid. Jesus was calling Jairus to believe fully in Him. It's one thing to believe God. It's another thing to place the welfare of your family in his hands, to know that no matter what happens, you have a king who cares. That's exactly what Jairus does. They're led back to the house. People are outside mourning. Jesus allows himself and five other individuals in to see this dead girl. Peter, James, John, Jairus, his wife, were the only five besides Jesus and this little girl. And everybody's wailing in the commotion, and Jesus goes to send them out, and He says this. He makes another one of His silly statements. Jesus says, Oh, don't cry, she's just asleep. (laughs) Well, He must have been a really good carpenter because he's a lousy doctor. She's dead. You know what they did? They laughed. They laughed because they didn't believe. They didn't think it could happen. They didn't have enough faith that Jesus could do the things that He said that He could do. So He sent them out and He left only this small group of people. And He allowed Jairus and his wife to witness the power of And the love of Jesus as He raised this little girl back to life. There would be lots of stories told from this little girl. I wish we had a few of them. I wish she would tell us what it was like to be dead for a little while. And then to come back. I suppose she was a little disappointed. I suppose where she was was a whole lot better than where she came back to. But she knew. She knew that heaven would still be there for her. What she also knew is this. She knew that she had a father who would seek out Jesus. She had a father who who would bring him into the house. And she had a father who would trust Jesus with his family. I want this to be an encouragement for our fathers. To serve as a reminder that we have an awesome responsibility and in that, we have a wonderful blessing of placing that first impression upon our children. What, were, what will your sons and daughters think about when they think about their father? My prayer is that they will think of you just as Jairus's daughter thought about him. This morning, I want to pray a blessing over our fathers. I've been one for 11 years. Just like you, I've scratched my head. I honestly looked at my wife when we brought Wyatt home, and he and his little 6-pound, 14-ounce body, 15-ounce body. And we looked at each other, and we literally said, What do we do now? We honestly thought that, that the hospital had made a mistake when they let us come home with him. We thought we have no idea what we're doing. And there have been plenty of times that I have proven that to be the case. But I do know this. I know that all the time, Wyatt, Lily, and Gracie's father messes up they have a heavenly Father who won't. And so my prayer, my blessing for each one of us as fathers is that we will continue to point them to a perfect heavenly Father who loved them so much that He would give up His Son. And so this morning, we celebrate. And we give thanks. I want to close out with a prayer of blessing and then we'll have our song of invitation. Father God, I just I want to lift up these men to you, these fathers, these grandfathers. Uh, each one of us is, is we have had times of, of excitement, times of confusion, times of desperation, times of anger and sadness and joy and pride. Lord, we don't want to pretend like we know everything, but what we do know is that You are the Father who provides a perfect example. And so, Lord, let us just show our children the way to You. Let our first impression on them be about a God who loves us, that He would send His Son. And so, Lord, as we find our way as fathers, I pray that You will give us strength and encouragement and wisdom Help us to uh, become focused, remain focused, to make the priority in our lives, sharing You to our family. Lord, may we continue to lift You up this morning. Lord, we give You thanks for who You are. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. If there's any way that we could assist You this morning, or you want to claim Jesus as your Father, Lord, and Master, we want to encourage you to do it now as we stand and sing.